Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. Today I'm going to be talking to former Redskins corner Fred Smoot, Mississippi State head coach Joe Moorhead, and Bram Weinstein is going to join me at the end. But first, here's my conversation with Joe Moorhead. Now I'm joined by Mississippi State coach Joe Moorhead, who's, who has as good an insight as anybody on Montez Sweat. And so, Coach, I just want to start right there. What, are the, what do the Redskins get in Montez Sweat? You know, first and foremost, I think you have a kid with unbelievable physical talent, uh, tall, uh, great size, uh, athletic, you know, long arms, can run, you know, can play the run, can play the pass, and he's got a great motor and he understands what it takes in terms of preparation to play at a high level. So I think you're getting the whole package with Montez. When, when when you got there, you know, he had been in the Big Ten, you were in the Big Ten. Did you know much about him before you got to Mississippi State? I, I did not. So what did you, when you first saw him, what were, what were your, some of your initial thoughts? As an offensive guy, I thought he'd make a pretty good tight end, to be honest with you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the thing with Montez, he's, re- he's really kind of got a quiet, unassuming way about him. He's got a great demeanor. But, uh, you know, I think the, the biggest thing, you know, that caught my eyes when we started that first spring practice and just, you know, seeing a guy who can, who can you know, rush the passer, who, who's strong at the point against the run and had a really good motor. Why – what makes him a good pass rusher? I, I think his ball get off. I think he, he, he does a great job with a, his first step off the line of scrimmage. And then, I, really, I think he's got a great plan and a great arsenal of moves. Obviously, the – the big thing people see is, is the speed rush and his ability to get on the edge versus an offensive tackle. But I think, as you saw in the senior bowl, he's got a good speed to bowl. Uh, he's got a good, you know, club rip, a good, you know, up and under. So I, I think a lot of people, you know, tackles need to prepare for, for Montez to beat them with the speed rush. And he has a lot of good counter punches off of that as well. He's got that length. How did he use that to his advantage? Yeah, no, certainly when, when you uh, – you know, he gets into a, a, a tackle in a pass rush set, and he's able to, to extend and create separation, and then particularly in a run game, too, with, with run at him with as much zone and, and, and power as you see. And, uh, you know, I think that allow, length allows him to, to, to keep blockers away from his body. And he play, he's played in a bunch of different systems in college. So for you, I think you guys went to the 4-3, correct? Yeah, we were, we were primarily a four down, but when we got into our third down situations and we were one of the top teams in the country wow. on third down, we, uh, you know, we were able to use him in a stand-up position, kind of in a, a bunch of different ways to take advantage of his skill set. And how did he do in those? In those, because it seems like to me that's one of his strengths is being able to play in multiple ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when the scouts came on, on our pro day, they did a bunch of pass drops with him. So, so he's as comfortable playing with his hand on the ground as he is, you know, in a two-point stance or in space. One of the things that struck me, you know, before the draft, when I just I like to watch guys, see what see what people are talking about one of the things that struck me is when you guys are playing Alabama and it's 24 nothing Montez was always showing up in the film at the end of the run so it just seemed like his effort was always there was that pretty indicative of what you saw all year yeah I think through through, through the entire season and you know when when I first got there and, and the season ended and you know Montez had an opportunity to go to the NFL after his junior season and we had a long talk and talked about our transition to the four down and playing in our system and you know what would that be able to do for him 
and, and he made the decision. He and his family said, all right, we're going to come back. You know, we're going to play our senior year. From the second he made that, that decision, he, he was a model teammate, model player. And, you know, I think that motor that he played with, as you mentioned, in the Alabama game was something that you saw the whole season. What kind of a run defender did you, was he for you? I'll tell you what, with, with, with as much zone read and stuff that you see uh, at, at the college level, you know, when, when he was away from the point of attack, he was able to use that length. And mm. if the quarterback handed it off, he'd tackle the dive. If the quarterback pulled it, he'd run him down. But I, I think he's deceptively strong at the point of attack, you know, a, a, against fan blocks, against pullers. So he, he's not a guy that's just a, a third-down guy. He's an every-down guy to me who can play the, the run as equally as effective as he can play the pass. You would have faced, when you were at Penn State, you would have faced Nick Bosa. How would you compare? The, I know they're, they're different players, but how would you compare the two? Just from my, my recollection of going against Bosa, for, it was either the 16th and the 17th year. I think they're very comparable players. Bosa may have a little bit more size uh, and girth, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong there. But, but I feel like, you know, Montez, to me, and just, you know, dealing with Montez and preparing for Bosa, I feel like, you know, Montez may have a little bit more athletic ability, but I could be off base on that. That's just based on my observation. Sure. And you know, when he was at Michigan State, he obviously he ended up at Mississippi State for a reason, had some got into some trouble there. Did you I know you were only there one year with him, but did you have any issues with him at all? No, not 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 a not a speck of trouble on or off the field. Montez did a great job in the classroom, great job getting his degree. Uh, you know, was very punctual, had great accountability in terms of and being places on time and where he needed to be, and you know, was a great practice player and an even better game player. So yeah, we had we had no issues with Montez in any capacity in his time here with us. What made him a good a great practice player? Did he understands what you do on Monday to Friday is going to dictate what you do on on Saturday on game day, and I think he took that kind of approach that uh, you know he wanted to prepare himself to do his best on, on game days, and he knew the way to do that was during the week. Was he like, was he one of the better practice players you had, or is that going too far, or is he did he stand out in that area? No, when you have the top ranked defense in the SEC, well, that's true. The country, there's, <laughs> there's going to be a bunch of guys. Absolutely. But I think what 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 made him a good practice player is, you know, our front four with with Montez, with Jeffrey, yeah. with uh, Braxton Hoyette, and then Gary Green. You know, th- that was a group that had a lot of camaraderie. You know, our our you know D line calls himself the D block, so there there were there was a lot of uh, a lot of um, you know peer influence within the group to make sure that no one slacked off, and I think Montez really bought into that. And, and I, Jonathan Abram was probably our best practice player. I've never okay. seen a guy in really in 21 years practice as hard as he does. Wow. But Montez was right up there, and I think that's because kind of the uh, you know the, the, the camaraderie that our D line had. The big issue in the draft. And part of the reason why he fell where in the Redskins could get him at 26 was the, the, the reports about the heart issues. What do the doctors at Mississippi State tell you with him? Because obviously you guys feel comfortable with him because he played, but what did they tell you about that? I mean, it was never an issue. So, I mean, to, to the point where when that stuff came up and he had played the entire season, it, you know, it was, you know, our doctors had checked. I mean, it was just, it was never an issue for us. So it never really came up in much conversation. So you guys never even even when you got there was it at least a conversation they said he's okay or was it something like that or did I mean we go over every player and every record and everything with, with, with our guys so I mean it was you know not to, it never brought up to the point where it could hinder his performance or hinder his play and you and you clearly you guys and they gave you the comfort level to that it wasn't even a worry for you guys 
Yeah, I mean, we would never, ever right. just put a player on the field if there was a, a concern about his health or his safety. So, uh, you know, I think our training staff does an unbelievable job about Thomas Cowns. But, yeah, <laughs> certainly if, if there would have been a risk in, in any capacity, <clears throat> we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have, you know, we wouldn't allowed Montez to be on the field. One of the other guys the Redskins drafted in that first round was Dwayne Haskins. Did you recruit him at all when he was in high school? Uh, I think when I got to Penn State, I think he was already. Commi- I think he had been committed to Maryland originally, right? And then then ended up going to Ohio State, if I don't recall. But I think when I got to Penn State, we had our commitment uh, for that class already, if I'm not mistaken. So you you didn't you you weren't as familiar with him then at that point. No, I knew. Oh, I knew. I knew who he was. Okay. Uh, and I knew the type of player he was, but we we had never really got you know that involved in the recruiting process. Is it? Do you think it's different now? Like, is it, a big thing with him is the experience level. Do you think it's different at all for? A quarterback coming out of college, and it was you know years ago where the experience maybe mattered a little bit more. Or do you think it still is a big deal? I think you know having played the position of quarterback, you know the number of repetitions you get, you know in practice and in the game, and certainly those are all things that that aid in your development, make you a better player. But uh, I think now when you when you look at kind of the, the landscape of high school and college and professional that that these quarterbacks are starting seven on seven and early training so young that it it really helps it really helps in their uh helps in their development and uh you know coach day runs a great system and obviously with uh you know coach meyer as well so i think you know playing in that system is going to help them as well to be ready for the next level have you did you do you get a lot of calls from nfl coaches now picking your brain about offenses Uh, yeah, I get I get some get some calls and some uh, inquiries. Yes. What is it they want to know? Because like this is and and, and I ask you that because in talking to some NFL coaches, like one told me last year that when he's watching guys to scout for the draft, he also finds himself watching the offense and the system and looking at plays, something he had never done. So is it more? And, and what are they trying to find out from you? When people see the success of of quarterbacks who are able to beat you with their arm and beat you with their legs. That the uh, you know the proliferation of one back kind of I don't want to say spread offenses but RPO based right. you know, run games combined with West Coast pass games which is what we do and kind of what we've been known right. for and you know uh, I, I just think you're seeing more and more of that at the NFL level and I don't get to watch a ton of it so I'm not sure how expansive or, or how the the you know depth or the width of it but uh, yeah there 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 are people that have quarterbacks with those skill sets and. You know, when, when a quarterback can beat you with his legs, it makes him even tougher to defend. It makes the offense tougher to defend as well. Now, if we hear the Chipotle offense the NFL, we know where that came uh, from, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's trademark, but we, we, uh, we thought it was a good, accurate description. It's, I like that. Just have a couple more here for you. Um, one of the guys you had at Penn State was Saquon Barkley. Had a great year last year. What makes him a different back? I think he's got – what makes him different is that he's got small back qualities in a big back body. I mean, whatever he is, six foot, six one, two 230 pounds, you know, in the low four fours or high four three range. But he can beat you between the tackles. And, uh, you know, like we did with him at Penn State, when you get him the ball on the perimeter, you know, he can – you know, you kind of thought, well, it worked in college. Is he going to be able to separate and run by people in the NFL? And I think he answers all those questions. So I think he could do it between the tackles. I think when you get him the ball in space, he's a home run threat every time. And I think the other thing is, you know, his pass catching skills, uh, you know, is something that makes him, you know, in baseball is the term is five tool player. 
know, I, I, however many tools there are for a running back, he has all. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. How big is there a gap between the SEC and the Big Ten? Do you notice one? Uh, I mean, uh, to me, I mean, it, it's, you know, I guess it's up to uh, you know, kind of interpretation. It's a bit subjective, but, but, but I think you're talking about, you know, two of the, you know, best conferences in all college football. And if, if you just look at the raw numbers, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there were there were 90 players from the SEC invited to the NFL Combine last year, uh, 54 from the Big Ten, and then 53 from the SEC West. And I believe there there was a uh, correlation to the number of people drafted. So, uh, with Coach Franklin, coming from Vanderbilt, when we would talk about the SEC when we were at Penn State, he he would say always that the thing that kind of caught his attention was was the size and the speed and the athleticism of the offensive and defensive lines in the SEC. So that's mm-hmm. that's one thing that's always stuck out to me in you know the time I've been down here. And, and to, to me, you win those national titles with those two sides, with that set right there too. And um, the, you guys last year, you had tremendous, like you said, a tremendous defense. Lost s- several guys to the NFL in the first round. What is that defense going to look like this year? For you, I think the strength of it, or I say strength, but the strength of our returning kind of production is our linebacking core. Uh, you know, Errol Thompson, Willie Gay, Leo Lewis, and Tim Washington. You know, they, they're as, as productive and as talented as any unit in the, in the SEC or in the country. Uh, you know, Brian Cole will replace. Uh, well, he he played a lot, but he, he'll he'll play the, the star position. You know, we lost three of our four guys in the secondary. Cam Dancer is a guy that I know that's, that's rated very very high going into the season as a junior. Uh, Fletcher Adams and, and Chauncey Rivers played a bunch of snaps for us at defensive end, and Kobe, Kobe Jones. So we got a bunch of, you know, depth there. The, the key will be replacing the, the interior guys. So on top of our two starters, Jeffrey Simmons and Braxton Hoyette, we also lost the next three primary backups. So we got a lot of talent there. A little bit of it old, a little bit of it young. But we just got to get those guys a bunch of reps and experience and get them grown up real quick. And then on the other side of the ball, the passing game—that's that's your kind of your what been your thing. You have Tommy Stevens coming in there now. How is that looking for you? Yeah, I mean we haven't been around them. They, they've been doing kind of seven on sevens and things right. and thrown on their own for NCAA rules. So uh, you know they, they've been doing good in summer conditioning. We've had some meeting time with them prior to us going on vacation. But you know I think that was probably the most you know in retrospect looking back on it, you know transitioning from Coach Mullen's offense to what we run here and what I've run in the past. Thinking the uh, you know the transition in the pass game would have been a little more smooth and seamless, and you know we were second in the SEC in rushing. We were averaged you know just above 30 points a game, but there were four games in the middle of the season against really good competition that we didn't throw it as well as we needed to. For us to be the offense we need to be, we need to be more efficient, more explosive in the pass game. And I think, as you mentioned, with Tommy and KT compete for the job, right. we had a grad transfer and Isaiah Zuber from Kansas State. Uh, you have a couple of real good returners coming back. You know, in a bunch of talented tight end. I think that's, you know, for us to take the next step as an offense and a team, we we have to pass the ball better this year. Hey, coach, I have a special guest here who wants to ask you a question. Hey, it's Fred Smoot, uh, top cornerback of all time of the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Coach Moorhead, I just personally want to ask you. Are we going to win the SEC West this year? I have to know because I believe in you, Coach. I know you got the offense right. We got to replace a couple guys on defense. But can we win the SEC West? I would have stayed at Penn State uh, where I was, you know, two hours from my parents and an hour and a half from my wife's family. And, you know, we were having a really good run at it there. If I didn't think we could do that, you know, I wouldn't have taken this job. And, and I think that was part of the attraction of it. In the two years I was at Penn State, had some different opportunities. But, when you get to go into the SEC West, and if you want to be the best, you got to compete against the best. So I'll never go into your saying, 
that we can't win it or else I shouldn't be doing the job I'm doing. Now, is it going to be hard? Is it going to be tough? You know, absolutely. But if we're not talking about winning it, then then I'm not the right person for this job. Joe, that's a great answer. I appreciate your time and your insight onto Montez and, and all this other stuff. So thank you very, very much for joining me. Absolutely. God bless you. Have a great day. And coming up, the legendary talker, Fred Smoot. Fred and I cover a lot of topics from where does he get his sense of humor to the coaches he played for, the legendary coach that he used to razz on, and then his thoughts on a number of Redskins players. Now I'm bringing in one of my all-time favorite guys that I covered, personality, his toughness on the field, always a joy to talk to and to be around Redskins legendary corner, Fred Smoot. How are you, Fred? I'm great, John. Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate you coming on. So I want to get to some of the tough questions first. First, have you ever, and I asked Brian Mitchell this question a couple weeks ago, have you ever lost an argument? Yes, my mama is a great talker, and my family members, like, if, I'm sure Pete Mitch told you, we can't hang with, hang with our family members. That's why we like to talk noise outside of the house. When's the last time you lost? I mean, so when you're around your family, you might lose something. Who out-talks you? Well, my mom, before she passed, bless her heart, a year ago, she was a great talker, and she's a lot louder than I was. So she really? Would, she would talk over me, and it would kind of, like, drown me out, and I just quit. I can't imagine anybody drowning you out. Is is that where you, cause you're also like, you're a funny guy. And let me tell you something. I was Googling your name yesterday and just kind of going over some stuff. And I didn't realize there was actually a comedian named Fred Smoot who appeared on the tonight show with Johnny Carson. I thought, and my first thought was Fred Smoot was on there. Well, it turns out it wasn't you, but you are a funny guy. Where do you get that sense of humor? Well, I just, I'm a happy person by nature, and like I said, I come from a long line of joke tellers that like to enjoy themselves, so, you know, just having a funny bone and not taking stuff always serious was my way of, it's a coping mechanism uh, for a take. So I, I like to laugh, I like to always be upbeat, and I like to always have fun. When did you realize you were a funny guy? Oh, early in life. You're talking second, third grade, when I used to always have to sit beside the teacher because I was loud, you know, people in trouble. <laughs> Now, you play, what I remember, too, from when you're playing days here, and I'm going to get to a bunch of other stuff in a minute, but I'm always like, I like to hear about Fred the person, but is we'd be on one sideline, and you'd be on the other sideline in a group of guys, and they're all laughing, and all I see is your mouth going. So I, I always assume, I would just start laughing as I figure whatever Fred is saying, it's got to be funny. But was there a guy that you like to needle more than others? Well, I like, uh, Carlos Rogers was one of my favorites. Because he had this laugh. He has a laugh, and it's not a really a laugh. It's a heckle. So if I could ever get him to heckling, I would just keep reeling the off. I just keep reeling the jokes off so I can continue to laugh because I'm actually laughing at how he laughs at people. <laughs> Jason Campbell was another target. Oh, I love talking about that. Well, Jason is an easy target because Jason ain't going to talk back. So, so I would just murder Jason, man. I enjoyed it. And, like, all my teammates were like that. Robert Royal is a great talker. Uh, John Springs, contrary to belief, yeah. is a great talker. He can joke around with the best of them. So I enjoyed doing it, man. You know, with a stressful job like the NFL, man, to have time to joke and get to know people for who they really are, that was, that was what I wanted to do. 
what did you like picking on Jason Campbell? I, I, ha- I mean, you used to you used to say he was like in his eleventh month pregnancy. Oh yeah, he had the worst body I've ever seen from a pro athlete. Like I've never seen a pro athlete's body look as bad as Jason <laughs> did. Jason was in the best shape of his life, and he still had a turtle shell in the front. That ain't gonna work. All right? You should not have a gut if you're the quarterback. And plus, one time we played Tampa Bay in Tampa, and uh, we was in a we was getting ready to leave and. Jason had on some Hexile Jim Duggan draws. He had some Westland draws on. And we talked about him so bad that he left the underwear in Tampa. (laughs) You know, the other thing that I remember from you is that you were one of the few guys who could understand Rod Gardner. Yes. Yes, I'm from the South, so I am an interpreter. Yeah. Of the southern guy. There, so, yes, most definitely I can understand him. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, it's it's funny because you obviously, like, you played in a period where you played for a lot of guys and with a lot of guys. So I want to run through some of the guys because you came in and there's, you know, Daryl Green and there's and there's Deion Sanders when you first got here. What was that like for yeah. you? Uh, it, was a, it was a dream come true and a nightmare all in the same sentence. It was a dream come true because – I've always been a top-notch Deion Sanders fan. So to be in the same meeting room with him for the time that I got to talk to him and get to know him was was my dream coming true. And then to have a guy like Daryl Green in there and then to top it off, Pamp was a yeah. young guy at the time. So, man, it was like I remember when I first went in the, the, the meeting room, I was like, why did y'all even draft <laughs> What what did you what did you remember from anything anything though those guys told you that stood out more than anything else? Well, I can remember talking to Dion, which what 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 made my relationship with him already good. I was already talking to him out of college. Okay. So I had already built a rapport with him, and Dion liked to give it to you straight. He was one of those guys. He's gonna give it to you real. So, and he also gave me pointers and, and told me I like the way you talk, Noah. Just be ready to back it up in this NFL because if you're talking and don't back it up, they'll never let you forget it and they're going to attack you at all times. So he kind of he, he kind of got my mind right for what was to come. Did you ever like to needle your coaches? Oh, I used to always talk trash to Coach Gills all the time. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I one of the few people that ever, like I used to joke around with Coach all the time. I remember me and him was talking the other day because me and Coach talk, I talk to him about every two weeks now. Oh, okay. So we talk all the time. And I can remember one day, Coach just refused to let us in. Like, he wanted us to practice. And it was storming. It was hurricaning. And he was like, no, we're going to practice. Then it started lightning and thunder. So everybody knows just to run up then. So I run tap Coach on the butt. And I say, well, I say, it took God to send lightning and thunder to get us to stop? To get you to stop us from running us up? And he was like, you better be glad because I'm going to keep it going. So I used to always get Coach. You know, I used to always rag Coach a lot. Let's go through some of these coaches that you played for. When you got here, Marty Schottenheimer here was here, and, and I talked. I talked to John Jansen about these these same coaches. You guys playing that same period. What were your thoughts yeah. on Marty? Uh, I love Marty, man. Marty was a, a grandfather figure. Marty was the guy that believed in me. Marty drafted me. He was tough. He was fair. And the one thing about Marty, man, he can. He should have been in the movie because he can try. He can cry at the drop of a dime. <laughs> yes, he can. Yes, he can. That that was evident at that welcome home lunch in the, the his his one and only time there. Um, Steve Spurrier. I talked to Steve Spurrier today. I interviewed Steve Spurrier on the radio today. One of the funnest people you will ever meet. And 
the word genuine should have a picture of Steve Furrier under it because he's the most genuine person. He don't know how to be nobody else but Coach Furrier. You know, it's funny because that's the one thing in covering him, I always felt like he was one of the more nicer guys or honest guys in this business. I also didn't think that he was really an NFL coach. Did you? I thought he was an NFL coach, but you love what you love. He loves college Well, football. right, and that's, that's a good point. Yeah, good way to put and it. He's, he's good at coaching pros, but he loves college. It's too much control in the, in the pros for him. He needs to have a, a amount of control to do things the way he wants to. So I think him coming to Washington was just a good gateway for him finally getting to South Carolina. And then Gibbs, you brought up Gibbs, you know, teasing him and all that. But what what did you learn from him, or what was it like for playing under him? Ah, uh, man, it was great. Uh, I got a playing under him. I got a new family member because, like I said, he, he's basically my my makeshift granddaddy. Uh, I got a person that that's caring that taught me a lot uh, about being a person, about being Fred Smoot more than just a football player. And, and Coach Gibbs, man, just an all-around great guy. He's always there when you need him. He's always there when you need somebody to talk to. And the funny part about it, uh, I did an interview the day that uh, Coach Furrier retired on ESPN. They asked me who was going to be our next coach. I said, well, maybe we need to call Coach Gibbs. Coach Gibbs <laughs> and Miss Gibbs was watching ESPN at that time, and this when he asked his wife, should he come back? And she told him, yes, he decided to come back that day. It's all because of you. That's good. Yeah. I wouldn't say all because of me, but I put it out there in the air, and he answered the call. There you go. Um, did you put it out for Jim Zorn? Uh, I did not put it out for Jim Zorn. <laughs> but fairness to Jim, Jim did not ask to be coach. He no. was supposed to be our offensive yep. coordinator. That wasn't, that wasn't his fault. Um, I want to turn to some more to the current team here, and – during this offseason, you had said some things with Josh Norman that maybe you thought it was time to move on or whatever. What are your – they clearly are not. So what are your thoughts on him moving forward with the Redskins? Uh, I just think it's time to live up to the billing. I, I think he has the talent. And you know me, I'm one of those stifflers. I like to look at stuff the way they were because when we sign free agents, I always ask people, are you going to do what made him successful at the last place he played at? All right, we did the same thing with Hainsworth. We got Hainsworth here. He was a one-gap technique guy. We made him play two gaps. Right. right? It's just not going to work. We, we get uh, Norman here. He's basically a, a zone blitz guy. We make him play man. You know, so right. I'm not one of the people like if you do the free agent right and you put him in position to make plays, he can. My question is this year, are they going to put him in position to make plays? And I'm a concrete guy. Leave him on the left side. Do not make him follow people and, and, and see what you can get out of Josh. And maybe if he has a great year, you maybe can think about resigning the guy. Now, how much? Because you were a film guy when you played. How much film do you still yeah. watch? I, I still watch a lot of film. I just can't help it. Like I absorb football. Like if it's there, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to study it. And plus, I always want to know what really happened. Like, sometimes you can't you can't know what really happened if, one, you don't know the call that was right. called. Two, you don't know where the breakdown happened at. So I, I try to find those two things before I, I speak on people, I speak on a situation. So knowing that, like, when you, when you watch Josh, why is he more effective as a zone corner? Uh, because the one thing about Josh, he's never been the fastest man on the field. That's never been who he is. He never won with, uh, how should I say, high-end athletic uh, ability. He's a thinker. He's scrappy. He's tough. He's smart. And if you give him a game plan when he's playing zone, and he has a habit of playing with his butt to the sideline. 
If he plays with his butt to the sideline, that allows him to look through the receiver, through the tackle, and to the quarterback. And he can play and he can react like that. When you put him in man, his butt is pointed uh, going to the field goal post and pointed straight, and he don't like to play like that. Right. He, he, he would rather play uh, angrily, and he would rather play going downhill. The other guy, and I've talked to you about this when back when you were when we talked on 980 several weeks ago about Jimmy Moreland. You're, yeah. you're you were pretty high on him at that time, if I recall. I was high on him. I've been I've been watching him for the last couple of years at JMU. Like I knew that this guy was talented. I didn't know if anybody was going to draft him, or I didn't think we was going to draft him. I just didn't know. But I knew if he got on the field, he can make plays. He reminds me truly of Dre Bly. Uh, uh, Run Day Barber hybrid. Really? It reminds me of those guys. And one thing those guys got in common is they got a knack for the ball. They Johnny on the spot. The ball finds them. He has that same neck. And he's feeling and he's a competitor. And that's why I think he's going to be a pro in this league for a long time. What, when, cause, and that can, word competitor and toughness gets thrown around a lot with him. And I've used it myself when I watch him. What is it that you see when you watch him that tells you that? Ah, uh, the fact that he loves to press. I can always tell as a corner feeling. Because if you ain't afraid to get on the line and press anybody, no matter what their speed is, no matter what you've seen on TV the last 10 years, he's not afraid of anybody. Every time I go to Redskins practice, he's up on the line and he's pressing whoever is in his face. He don't like playing off, man. He likes to compete. And if you're going to beat him, you're going to have to beat him fair and square. They have, obviously, a rookie quarterback in camp with Dwayne Haskins, and the talk is, when will he start? So from your perspective, first of all, how much have you watched? did you watch him in college, and what, did, what, what are your thoughts on him? I couldn't help but watch him because Sean Springs is so high on him. Yeah. And he just, he, he swear down, he's the holy grail of the quarterback. So <laughs> I watched him. The guy can make every throw. Uh, There's it, no throw on the field he can't make. And, and when I look at him, his high-end ceiling – is Ben Roethlisberger, right? His middle is Jameis Winston. His bottom line is Byron Leftwich, right? That's yeah. His body build, that's his throwing talent, that's who he is. Now, I see a kid that learns quickly. I also see a kid that hasn't been through a lot of adversity, and that scares me. Like, I need my quarterback to go through some adversity so I know how he responds to it. But I think he's a talented kid, and I think he can be a great Redskins quarterback if we're patient. As a defensive back, when you're watching a rookie quarterback, what are some of the things that you try to play off on to know that maybe this guy isn't ready? Or let me back up. What do you, when do you know that that guy is like at a different level and ready to be a starter? I, when, I see, when I see him not get rattled when he make mistakes, I want to see how you respond at the mistakes, not see you never make mistakes. I want to see you go out there. I want to see you lead a team. I want to see you make a bad throw, come back, make a good throw. I want to see you fail to succeed, and that tells me everything because if you didn't have the talent, you wouldn't be here anyway. Everybody got the talent, but everybody don't have the mindset, and everybody don't got the patience to be a good pro. So when I see a quarterback that's patient, that's trying to read defenses, and a guy that knows where to go to the ball without holding on to the ball, that tells me a lot. And that's why I don't like starting rookie quarterbacks the first four weeks of the season because we get a faster start than they do, and we tee off on quarterbacks the first four weeks. And, and that's why I think that word patience is the, is the key word for him and the Redskins. Do you think they will be patient? And, you, and I think it depends on who's making this call, but do you think they'll be patient? Well, it's, 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 
it's built up for it not to be in the Patriots. You got a coach that's on his last year of a contract that's playing for his coaching for his life. Uh, you got you got a backup quarterback that's hurt. Uh, you got Case Keenum who's new. So everybody in the quarterback room is kind of on the same footing. Like it's 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 it's, it's, it's meshing up for him to play early, and I don't want him to play early. Like I said, I don't want him playing before week five. They also have – I want to ask you about some of the receivers for a couple minutes here, and they have two rookie receivers, Terry McLaurin and Kelvin Harmon. And yeah. when you, when I was watching in the OTAs, the spring workouts, and you'd see like them going up against a Dominique Rogers-Cromartie, for example, and you could tell that – you know, DRC, you could see the veteran savvy. He wasn't fooled by a whole lot. So when is it that, what is the adjustment for a rookie receiver from your perspective? What do they need to start doing to start fooling a veteran corner? Uh, they need to learn how to truly run routes. Like, wide receivers in college get open off of skill set and ability. All right? And if you got a quarterback that can make all the throws, he can throw you open. In the league as a wide receiver, you have to learn how to run routes that look like other routes. If we get any heads up on what the route is, we will beat you to the spot. The great part about Reggie Wayne, his stop route looks like his go route. All right, nothing, nothing changed from his body length, his body position. Great receivers in this league, they, however you draw it up on paper, they run it exactly that way, but with the same stem that they run other routes from. How rare is it for rookies to come in being able to do that? Uh, it's very rare. Like I said, it's only a few guys. I like my class. Reggie Wayne had that ability to do that. Uh, Chad Chad Johnson. Yeah. For him, to, Chad can run any route, but Chad just wants to get to a spot. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Chad don't get to a spot by any means necessary. So he was he was totally different, and he relied on a, a, a different set of a, a, a talent. But you don't meet many, and if if you meet a great route runner. That must mean they're compensating for something. That mean they might not be the fastest, the biggest, or the strongest. Well, because that's what they bring up with McLaurin. Like, for example, is the speed. That the assumption is because you have speed, you can threaten somebody deep. How does that speed? How can you negate that speed as a corner if you're not being able to sell other routes? Can you negate that? Well, first of all, if you just got speed, you're not going to beat most corners in the NFL because the one secret to a very fast man is a man that cannot stop. If he's very fast, that means he can't stop. That means he takes four or five steps to stop. So that means he can get going, but he can't stop to go run a dig route. He can't stop to run a post. He can't stop to run out the route for So sometimes speed works against him. But now when you're dealing with a guy like Santana Moss, who is yeah. equally fast as he is quick, quick is the ability to stop and start. Most fast guys are not quick. Santana is fast and quick, right. giving him the ability to get in and out of route. Most fast guys don't have it. A la Troy Williamson, who played with me in Minnesota. Boy, yeah. two flat guy, but he could not run routes and he could not stop. And I actually think McLaurin will be pretty a pretty good route runner when it's all said and done. I think they all have to get there, but I think he will be. The last receiver I want to ask you about is a guy, a veteran, Josh Doxson. Huge year for him. What have you thought of him? Because obviously there's been a lot of debate on him and the production hasn't been where fans or, or he or the organization probably wants. What have your thoughts been on him? Yes, I love Josh as a, as a guy. I love him he's as a good guy. guy. He, you know, he's a great guy. He's highly inconsistent and he can frustrate you because he comes out there and he makes these unbelievable plays one day and the next day he disappears. All right? and, and the one thing I always do like about my receivers 
I like my receivers to have an attitude. And Josh ain't really an attitude guy. And like I said, I don't know what I'm going to get with him because the one word you can say with Josh is inconsistent. Right. He's very inconsistent. But he has the talent. He has the jumping ability. He can make any play on the field. But you just don't know which Josh is going to show up. And, you know, I think it says a lot about him not picking up his fifth year option. Right. Last last guy I want to ask you about, last question here, Montez Sweat, your alma mater. And yeah. I personally, I think he's going to make a big impact. And I'm curious what you saw of him when you would watch him play in college that is something you say, this guy, you know, first of all, how good do you think he's going to be? He is freakishly good. He is his first step to turn the corner. He is a natural pass rusher. He reminds me a lot of Javon Kurtz. I've been telling people this the last couple of years. He is the freak 2.0. And, and not only can he rush the pass rusher, he can actually play in space a lot better than people think he is. I think he's going to be one of those guys. He's going to make he's going to make his his presence fail from day one. Like he will he will be a double double digit stat guy from the time he starts probably to the time he retires. He could go down as one of the best linebackers that the Redskins ever have. I'm I'm I'm, I'm certain about that. I, I, he's the guy that I think that is going to make a really big impact right away. I agree with you. Hey, Fred, you're the best. I appreciate your time, man. All right, anytime, bro. Coming up, Bram Weinstein's going to join me, and we're going to be talking about Dwayne Haskins and a little bit on Trent Williams. Welcome back. Now, Bram Weinstein's going to join me, and we're going to have a couple topics we want to cover. And I'm going to turn it over to Bram for a minute because I think he has a couple questions for me. Okay, I, I want to start with Trent Williams. First, first, quickly, what's going on? That's a good question because there, it's been very quiet and silent, I would say. And I don't know that um, – I don't have anything to say that there's, it's moved further ahead, that they're close to some resolution. Um, the only thing that I know is that there was – um, the sides seem to somewhat disagree on the nature of the disagreement and what maybe, you know, from Trent's perspective, it's about the diagnosis and what, how they don't know what they're arguing about. Well, I think it's more I think what I've been able to gather, it's more that maybe the level of the medical concern might be a little bit different on the sides. And then I also know, like in talking to some people at the Redskins that that their thought was, well, they think that he was looking around the landscape of the NFL and the way some guys got rewarded for certain deals, Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, and that some of that is at play. But from talking to people on, on Trent's side or who have, who have talked to him, that it seems like there was definitely, it was definitely a medical thing and that, um, you know, whether or not money can solve everything, it usually does. But... Um, you know, but I think the the concerns on his side were were real. Okay, I want to bring this up because uh, we have friends on Facebook that follow this show, and they sent me. Uh, Tony Andrews sent me a note. He's one of the leaders of a group on Facebook that follows your okay. show. Okay, and he said this, and I'm not saying this, and you're not saying this, but he said this, and I thought it was worth at least asking this okay. question as a theory about Trent Williams, and it, it basically is this: a third strike suspension is eight games for him. Yeah. Do, do you believe that there is some kind of 
weed connection going on here that has kind of kept him away from being at Redskins Park? I haven't gotten that sense. Now, I will say this. Like, I haven't gotten that sense, but I'm not sure I would get that sense. Do you know what I mean? I don't know that somebody's going to drop that necessarily. So I do think, like, and even Jay Gruden said this during the spring, and other people have said that, he, wasn't, he wouldn't have been able to participate in these workouts anyways because he's still recovering from whatever procedure he had done to remove the growth from his head. And I even had someone, someone you know, um, who had talked to Trent was like, I can't believe that the Redskins didn't draft a tackle high in this draft this spring um, because they weren't sure where this was going to go. And so I don't think that he was staying away necessarily for anything like that. I think it was legitimately – some beefs and that he couldn't participate anyways. So if that's the case, you know, who knows? Yeah. But I don't know. All right. Let's get to, um, to the quarterback. Um, Doug Williams said it, which is <laughs> my gut reaction immediately when they drafted him, which was there are other things in play here. that are going to force a decision. And he just said it out loud that, you know, it's not just going to be Jay Gruden's choice. And the funny thing is I did text with somebody over there and they just said, they kind of laughed at it that, and their comment was, this is Jay Gruden's call. Um, and it's going to be the coaching staff just like Do other... you believe that, though? I don't believe that. I didn't I'm believe just, it from I'm the just, moment I, it happened, I didn't believe I'm that. I'm just relaying yeah. the message for right now. Right. So that it was Jay Gruden's call just like it is in other positions. Doug Williams didn't make that up. Now, I will. Well, <laughs> he, didn't. he did. He didn't he, make that up. He hasn't. But there are also times where Doug has said something where you get some feedback from other people over there saying, well, this isn't really the case. Um, for example, you know, I think it was a comment about, you know, not looking at guys for how they scheme fit. Well, that's a lot of what they do. So now I'm not saying that Doug is wrong. This because like, I do believe that if you're, if you're going to make, if you're going to start this kid, you're going to probably go let the owner know. So there's the level of involvement. Now the question I would have is, is it Bruce and Dan coming to Jay and saying, you're going to play this kid or is it Jay going to them and saying, Hey, this is what we're going to do because now or how about, I know you want me to start him, So I'm going and, to and make, that, I'm going to listen, make it, I'm going to give it the best possible opportunity for that to happen and, so that you don't force it down right. my throat. Now right? I will say like the key to this is what does case Keenum look like? And what does Colt McCoy look like this summer? Because if neither one of those guys are pulling away, do you almost have, you know, if you're the owner or you're anybody else there, it's like, well, why wouldn't you start this kid? And I think, so I think, like, I don't believe that there's no level of involvement by other people. And if you're Doug Williams, and Doug has said at times in the past, like, well, you know, he'll, you bring up a player. And he's like, well, that's the coach's decision, to, what they do with them. But Doug Williams is a quarterback, was a quarterback, and a very good quarterback in this league. And he's going to have an opinion on this whole situation. Now, is he sitting in on the meetings? No, that's not what he does. But, you know, you know they're going to be at least talking about that. So I do think that there's a level of involvement. Now, there was a time in, was it 2014, when Jay Gruden wanted to bench Robert Griffin III. It took him two weeks of convincing the owner that this is the change they had to make. The next that was based off performances, it, though, for a long I, time, I, right. and it was as clear as day it needed to happen. You know? no, yeah. Abs abs yeah. Yes, but yeah. it took two weeks. Right. It took two weeks, but yeah. the point is he went to the owner because he knew he had to do that, and it's like because of the, the sensitivity with Robert and the organization and, and the owner, and then the next summer when they made the move to Kirk Cousins, 
they, you know, Scott McLuhan and Jay Gruden went to the owner and let him know. Now, at that time, there wasn't any resistance. They were okay with the move. So, but the point is they involved them in the decision. So I think that if nothing else, there's going to be an involvement in the decision. To what degree, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think it'll be clear. Like I said, if, if Haskins goes out there and looks good this summer or plays well in the preseason games and the other ones aren't pulling away, then – I think you better have a good case why somebody else should start. Yeah. Well, listen, though. I mean, And it, I think it, if you're the owner, and they're going to know that. They're, they're going to know what the owner thinks in that. I am going to defend them for a moment on something like this um, because this happens everywhere. Okay, This isn't this isn't like exclusive to them. Right. And, and, right, and right. like it's always ex- explodes on them because it always doesn't seem to work out for them. Right. <laughs> and that's why. But like just think about what happened in New England a year ago. Okay. The coach did want to keep Jimmy Garoppolo. Okay. He would have traded him before they ended up getting fleeced to right, do it in right. the middle of a season. And the only reason why it didn't happen is, you know why, Robert Kraft made them keep Tom Brady. Now, it's a ridiculous comparison to make because that guy might be the greatest quarterback of all time. And he just won the Super Bowl again. So obviously they were right. However, everybody who follows this knows that Belichick was protecting Garoppolo, and he was going to play him sooner rather than later. And so it's not like the Redskins are the only team that deal with situations any, where an owner inserts himself in the middle of it. if there's a high-profile quarterback and a first-round pick, rookie is a high-profile pick. You're going to – that's going to be a discussion for an organization. Now, again, I think if, if Jay – you know, what you have to hope – and this always goes back to – um, the patience thing and it's having trust in the organization or in this coaching staff because you do have a number of former quarterbacks on that staff and they're in kind of former NFL quarterbacks on that staff. So they're kind of in a rare position where you have all that experience at that position. And if as a group they're saying this kid isn't ready, then you would like to think that they're going to say, okay, why not? And how soon, how close are, is this kid to being ready? Um, is it something where you say, okay, after the first four or five games, you know, but I think the key will be, again, you know, where is Case Keenum with this offense and how is Colt McCoy looking and, and can they hold him off? Because if they don't, then if you're the owner, then you're going to want to know why isn't this kid starting. And I wouldn't blame him. I'd, I'd, I'll, we're going to want to know the same questions, you know, have the same question on our end. So the owner would too. But I think you're right, though. It's not germane just to the Redskins where the owner would be involved. And I think anytime there's like this, the coach needs – needs to keep that owner abreast of the situation. That's going way back to the Marty Schottenheimer era. era. That's one of the things that I think frustrated from my, if I remember right, was not always keeping him abreast of situations. I, heck, when I first started covering the team, Brad Johnson was benched for absolutely no reason whatsoever for Jeff George, and it started the downfall well, of the there, initial era of Dan Snyder's stewardship and, on the Washington Redskins. I singularly look at, forget all the other signings yeah. that were bad signings. That was the first massive mistake that he made in terms of player personnel because Brad Johnson was a winner here and was well-liked and was well-respected. And it was a ridiculous thing to do to put this other guy in front and of they him because there hold, was no reason for it, and none. They, and they had to hold him, they had to hold off that move because Norv had been telling people that um, that there had been pressure for a few weeks to make that move. Yeah. Now that was early in Snyder's right. tenure too. And I think, you know, I don't know that, I don't know, like we always hear that he's changed and all that. Yeah. Um, and I, and I do, I have heard from m- multiple people that he's pulled back on like, he used to sit there and try and watch film and do things like that. 
Well, he doesn't do that stuff anymore, but you know that his thoughts are going to be heard. He's the owner. He's going to, and he's not afraid to communicate them. And, you know, whatever, you know, whatever everyone thinks about it, that's the way it is. So I think, and, but I do, like I said, I got a text back from someone pretty quickly after I asked about that. And it was that this is Jay Gruen's call. Now, We'll see. I think if, if he doesn't look – again, I go back to the draft. Like, if, if Dan Snyder was truly the one running that, we know that his thoughts were heard, okay? But the old ways, they would have traded up to get him to make sure that they got him. The fact that they were patient may have been, okay, this is the guy you want, but this is the plan to get him. And we'll see, like, if they – I keep hearing from other people there that they feel like it's different than even from when Robert was here, um, the way they're going about it. But will, the proof will be in the actions, right? So if, if he doesn't look great this summer and they still start him, well, then you know something's going on. And if he looks really good and they start him, then you say he's a first-round pick, right? And so, you know, um, so cool. We'll, we'll see. All right, last thing. What are you doing for the fourth? Oh, I have nothing special planned. I'm going up to Cleveland for a day. Uh, relative wow. part, rel- party. Well, it's a, it's <laughs> more, fun. it's like, it's like a family reunion, but on the fourth, I'm, I'm at some point I'm going to be cooking brisket over that weekend. That's what I know. Right. I don't know. We have nothing. How about you? Anything exciting? Beach. We'll be at the beach. See, that's Vacation better. Time. We got beach. no, we have, we did the I'm beach still in, in the mode April. of, even though I don't cover the Redskins, I need to go on vacation before training camp starts for some well, reason. So I'm like still kind of in that lockstep mode of having to do that. Well, so. you know what, what used to be, we used to always go to the Fairfax parade on July 4th. And to me, it always marked, almost felt like the end of the summer because in that parade, the Redskins marching band would be involved. And so every time I heard the fight song, my first thought was, my summer is about to end. And it was just getting started for everybody else. So, yeah, we have no beach plans. Um, We did the beach back in in, um, spring break for my son in Charleston. So we're done with the beach. That's it, folks. I appreciate Bram joining me. Always enjoy the conversation with him, as well as Fred Smoot and Joe Moorhead. Hope you enjoyed the show. As always, thank you for listening.